Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The biggest story of the week was the verdict coming in in the Derek Chauvin trial, the former Minneapolis police officer who knelt on George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes, causing his death. He was found guilty on all three counts, second and third degree murder, in addition to second degree manslaughter. It was a very emotional case, and many feel that justice has been served, but it's just a first step toward accountability. For more on this story and to help break down this historic verdict, we'll speak to Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News. So it's definitely chaotic, and I would describe it as very emotional. Once the verdict was announced, a lot of people erupted into tears. They were hugging each other. People were chanting all three and chanting Black Lives Matter. People of all races, not just black people, it's a very mixed race crowd and people were definitely celebratory and they're also being mindful to each other and just to news outlets. They're speaking to reporters like myself. They're telling us this is just the beginning. This is just the start. So the mood is definitely celebratory, but it's also a little somber and it's looking ahead at what yet needs to be done in our country with regard to policing. Yeah, just seeing some of the reactions so far, it seemed like a collective sigh of relief. Uh, I know people have said justice has been served. A lot of people saying justice has been served, but it's just the beginning. There's still a lot more to go, but this is a beginning at least. That's definitely what I'm hearing from people, too. I've been speaking to lots of people. I've been here following it every step of the way, and I've been out here even before the verdict was announced, and people were telling me that they were hopeful They said that the fact that the verdict came down about 10 hours after the jury had started deliberating, they deliberated for about 10 hours over two days, and they took that as a sign to mean that he was guilty. They felt like the longer that the jury had deliberated, it would be a sign of them being confused or at odds. So the length of time was an indicator to a lot of people that it would be a guilty verdict, but they did not necessarily interpreted to mean guilty on all three counts. And a lot of people are saying they hope that this has an influence across the country because there are problems in policing across our country that people have been objecting to for years. And George Floyd's death just reignited those problems. And they hope that with this verdict, it can open more conversations and actually invoke serious change where there needs to be. We got a statement from Ben Crump. He's the attorney for the Floyd family. And he said that painfully earned justice has finally arrived for George Floyd's family. And this verdict is a turning point in history. And it sends a clear message on the need for accountability for law enforcement. So definitely that's where people want to go on. And I just want to remind everybody, uh, you know, Janelle's joining us outside of the courthouse. So there's a lot of noise going on. But the next steps in all of this, the sentencing, it could be a few weeks away. But the judge also has to consider aggravating factors, which is going to be an important point. They could make the sentence even longer. Yes, the judge definitely will have to factor that in. What he has on his side is that clearly he didn't have any criminal history, but the judge will have the final say in terms of the length of his sentence. It's interesting to know, I don't know if you were aware, but we reported recently, as did other news outlets, that a few days after George Floyd's death, 
Derek Chauvin was willing to plead guilty to third degree murder and he was willing to serve at least 10 years in prison. But William Barr, who was the attorney general at the time, he killed the deal. And people close to him told us and other outlets that the reason why was because he feared that the sentence was too lenient and that it would cause a great uproar with that sentence up to 10 years. So he killed it. And now here we are. And he faces a much different punishment than just 10 years. So I wonder if that's something that is weighing on him, Chauvin, you know, had he been able to go ahead with that plea, he would have only faced 10 years. And now he's facing a much, much, much more punishment. I think the counts of second degree and third degree, I I think at a minimum or the presumed initial sentence is about 12 and a half years. So that's kind of a starting point possibly. And as we mentioned, these aggravating factors, there's five different ones. Floyd was vulnerable because he had his hands tied behind his back. He was treated with cruelty. The police abused their position of authority. The officers committed the act as a group and uh, it was done in front of children also. So these are all considerations that are going to be uh, taken into account for that. Yes, and I imagine they will weigh heavily when the judge is deciding it. Time will tell, but I can't imagine it helps his case in any way. The last thing, if you can comment on us, uh, Janelle, is the burden of proof was on the prosecution. They had to make the jury feel that without a reasonable doubt, Derek Chauvin did cause the murder of George Floyd. And obviously they did that. The defense was shaky all along and some of the way they approached this, I mean, you kind of shake your head at it. So definitely a victory for the prosecution team and the defense just did not muster enough to win this. They didn't. And I actually recently did an article about this. I spoke to a handful of legal experts, probably half a dozen prosecutors and also defense attorneys and What they unanimously said was that basically Eric Nelson was no match for this prosecution. It was a team of all-stars. The majority of the attorneys were seasoned attorneys, longtime attorneys. He was no match for them. They had 38 witnesses to his seven, and only two of his seven were experts. So he was clearly the underdog. And really, like you said, he didn't really have a defense. He was blaming George Floyd's death on his pre-existing health condition. But even the medical examiner's ruling didn't side with him. And the prosecution had these all-star witnesses from the police chief himself in the rare rebuke that we have discussed previously. He rebuked Chauvin. And then he had people like Dr. Tobin, who is a world-renowned pulmonologist, right. who literally mapped out the minute George Floyd stopped breathing. Excellent they testimony They just didn't have it. Yes, excellent testimony. He was able to break down this very complicated medical language to the average lay person, and it clearly translated because here we are with Chauvin being found guilty on all three counts. And the key thing all along, all of the video evidence that was also there. So, you know, we'll see. The conversation is going to continue, but for now, a historic verdict in this trial. Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. After these guilty verdicts in the George Floyd murder case, A lot of attention has been turned to what's next. District attorneys and law enforcement researchers say that with this decision, more prosecutors are going to be willing to charge police officers in shootings. With increased attention to police misconduct and this high-profile conviction, prosecutors may be more aggressive in these types of cases. For more on what to expect, we'll speak to Dan Frosch, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. I think we have to remember that this case is really unusual in terms of the conviction 
that was uh, won by the prosecutors. It is very rare to get a conviction in a fatal shooting involving police officers. Of the 140 cops who were charged in fatal shootings since 2005, only seven were convicted of murder and, and 37 were convicted of lesser crimes, according to a, uh, a research at Bowling Green State University. So it's exceedingly rare to get one of these convictions. But I think what we're seeing is that because of a confluence of factors, greater public awareness around alleged police misconduct, video incidents like this one, and the sense that there is greater pressure on district attorneys who we have to remember are by and large elected, that we will see more action in terms of some of these DAs deciding to prosecute police officers because they think they might be able to get a conviction in the wake of the Chauvin case. You were mentioning some of the numbers, 140 police officers charged in fatal shootings since 2005 only seven convicted of murder. We're seeing about a thousand deadly police shootings a year, according to some of those Bowling Green State University numbers. So that just kind of mm-hmm. illustrates even how few charges we get out of it. And a lot of it is because there's very high standards for charging police. They're giving a lot of leeway to use force when they're encountering the public for a variety of reasons, you know, their safety, the safety of others and all that. That's absolutely right. And, you know, we have to remember that usually in these cases, we will see sort of split second decisions made by law enforcement. And maybe that decision is right and maybe that decision is wrong. But law enforcement in general in these cases have been able to successfully use that sort of defense to preclude any convictions or even charges. The Chauvin case was different because obviously there was no split second decision. Chauvin sat kneeled on George Floyd for over nine minutes. There was no imminent fear of danger or any of the other reasons that police officers accused of misconduct in fatal shootings often use. So this case is different in that regard. But in terms of your larger point, yes, there are very few convictions because law enforcement are given a wide latitude in terms of the powers they have to protect life and their own ability to use deadly force. Talk about the split-second decisions. We're seeing that play out right now in the story out of Columbus, Ohio, where an officer shot Makia Bryant, where she was charging another person with a knife. He had mm-hmm. to make that decision, and he shot her. Unfortunately, she died. But you know the way that the story goes, protecting the other person from being killed possibly with a knife. So tell me a little bit more about kind of the ebb and flow of how we see these charges come through. Because you made note in your article about the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson in 2014. Mm-hmm. And after that, we did see a rise in officers being charged. Then it kind of tapered back off. And then obviously George Floyd happened. And then, you know, so they expect that this might even happen more. That's absolutely right. I mean, and the same goes for sort of police reform legislation. We see this ebb and flow of prosecutions, police reform legislation around high-profile incidents. When there is pressure on politicians, there's pressure on district attorneys, who, as I mentioned before, are elected, to take action. And when the public raises its voice collectively, as we saw last summer, that pressure builds. And then, you know, the challenge is when that public pressure dissipates, we sort of revert back to where things were before. And so you don't necessarily see prosecutors perhaps taking a harder look at some of these cases because prosecutors will only press charges in cases where they think they can earn a conviction. And whether or not cases move forward, often time depends on the public consciousness at a particular moment in history and any sort of recent precedent in cases like the George Floyd case, like what we're seeing now, which experts think could potentially, at least in the short term, 
lead to a rise in prosecutions of officers. Yeah, I mean, you know, we'll have to definitely see. And that's why communities and activists say you always got to keep up that pressure, keep it out there so mm-hmm. that the public is constantly aware of it. And uh, as you mentioned, reforms, actions, whatever it is, can be taken. We're getting ready for the trial for the three other officers involved in the George Floyd incident and see how that will turn out. You know, obviously, Derek Chauvin being convicted of murder doesn't bode as well for them as if as if he got off. So a lot of stuff still to go through. Dan Frosch, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Also this week, we saw a state of emergency declared at the Arizona border. Governor Doug Ducey has blamed the Biden administration for the surge in illegal crossings and said that about 250 National Guard troops would be deployed to the area to help local law enforcement that is overwhelmed. While unaccompanied minors continues to be a problem, in Arizona, we're seeing an influx of single adult males. For more on this, we'll speak to Alicia Caldwell, immigration reporter at The Wall Street Journal. So in Arizona, you've got two Border Patrol sectors, Yuma and Tucson. So the state's not quite divided in half. Tucson is a much bigger landmass area for Border Patrol. But you've got a lot of single adults coming through Tucson and a lot of families and kids coming through both areas. What's happening effectively is Border Patrol doesn't have any room to hold them because of the pandemic and limited space. You don't want to put people in crowded Border Patrol stations. It's never a good idea to put children in those facilities, according to Border Patrol. They're not designed for them. They're not designed for families either. Then you add the pandemic and and they're out of space. So they're putting up tents as we speak. One has gone up in Yuma. These are big 30,000 square foot tents divided into different pods where families and kids and single adults are held, primarily family and kids. They're only supposed to be there for 72 hours, a maximum of 72 hours. They're often there in terms of the kids for longer because Border Patrol is in a bit of a pickle, if you will, to sort of, I don't want to be glib about it, but they can't release children. The children have to be sent off to another government agency, the Department of Health and Human Services, and there's a backup there. So you've got all these different backups happening. And in Arizona right now, the big concern from local governments and some small towns is that families are being released in their communities. No one is staying in those communities. No one is staying in Ajo, Arizona, which is in the middle of the desert, north of the border, but doesn't have any infrastructure to handle folks. Same with a town north of there called Gila Bend. Those migrants then will be taken to Tucson, or Phoenix, where they'll be sheltered by non-government organizations, and they'll be helped you know, along their way into the interior of the U.S., wherever they were headed. But again, the problem is that there are a lot of people. In Tucson, as I said, it's the big issue is single adults. There are lots of them coming across the border illegally, but you do have that mix of families and kids as well. You know, a lot of times when we hear about stories, uh, you know, people coming to the border, the first inclination that people think of is Texas. And they're the only really place where we've seen some pictures of some of these centers where the kids are and where some of the adults are being held. Have we seen anything like that in Arizona? Any any pictures or optics from that? We've not seen pictures, but it's a different situation in Arizona. What you're seeing in Texas is not what you're seeing in Arizona. So you don't have significant groups of people, meaning 100 or 200 people at a time, surrendering to the Border Patrol the way you do in South Texas. In Arizona, like I said, it's, it's a lot of single adults crossing. Right. So those single adults can be turned around. They can be actually sent back across the Mexican border under a, a public health law called Title 42. 
It allows the government to expel them back to Mexico. No harm, no foul. You're just pushed back into Mexico, regardless of whether or not you're from Mexico, so long as the Mexican government will accept you. With the families, some of those folks are sent back as well. None of the kids can be sent back because the the Biden administration has, has decided that they will not expel unaccompanied kids. So you don't have the same volumes. You have different problems in Arizona than you have in, in Texas. If your listeners know Arizona at all, they know it's really rugged. There's lots of mountains. I was just down there on the border in Cochise County, which is sort of in the almost the dead center of the state. Well, I guess it's sort of the center east of the state, right along the border. There are massive mountains. There's fence line there or, or border wall, which, whichever you want to call it. But it's not been completed. And in some cases, in fact, the Trump administration sort of sheared off the sides of mountains to put in infrastructure. And then obviously they left office and the Biden administration is not putting in that infrastructure. So you've got a bunch of roads down there now that didn't exist before. And you've got people crossing in those desert areas with greater frequency. And it's important to remember that Arizona is no stranger to lots of border crossings. Arizona, in fact, was one of the hot spots in the 2000s before families and kids were an issue. So this is nothing new to them. The new component is the families and kids and those families and kids being released at the border or being held in tent facilities until they can be transferred or released. So that's kind of what you're dealing with in Arizona right now. There's always mixed feelings when the guard is being deployed, the money aspect of it. The two Democratic senators from Arizona actually said that this was a good decision. They agreed with it at least and said that there is some support needed there. But uh, what are they going to be doing? Uh, Because that's always the big question. You know, why bring in the guard? What are they going to be doing? So they're actually joining other DOD assets that are already there. It's important to remember that under President Trump, the National Guard was deployed along with active duty military. And National Guard's been deployed over the course of years since really the Bush administration in earnest. Uh, Excuse me, W. Bush, President George W. Bush. So they're joining some already deployed resources at the border, but they're not allowed to do any immigration enforcement. They're not allowed to do any law enforcement. They're going to help with monitoring cameras, deploying cameras. According to the governor, they'll help in detention facilities in terms of medical care, providing medical care, because obviously in the midst of a pandemic, that's a significant issue. And you do have a lot of people who come across the border who are in need of medical care aside from the pandemic. It's a treacherous trip, so it's not unheard of for someone to be injured along the road. But it's incredibly important that we stress the National Guard can't enforce immigration or really help with immigration enforcement because of a variety of laws, posse comitatus. You're not allowed to conduct law enforcement as U.S. military in the U.S. in this setting. So they're there to help and augment. And really, in this deployment, they'll be there to help and augment local law enforcement and state troopers and and so on. Well, we'll see if, you know, it helps remedy some of the situation that's going on there. The other th- interesting thing will be to see how the Biden administration reacts to all of this. And, uh, you know, uh, again, this uh, just uh, increasingly becoming a problem there that needs to be addressed. Alicia Caldwell, immigration reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.